Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. My day job is as a coach, helping people live better lives. I coach executives and leaders. I coach entrepreneurs and I coach civilians who are looking to improve their lives, their health, their relationships. Basically, it allows me to do what I didn't think was possible, which is to help people completely erase bad habits and different ways of being, erase negative feelings and replace them with positive ones rather than just help people develop new strategies to compete with the old ones or new thought patterns to debate the old thought patterns. And I'm looking for people to work with. And I have reduced my rates a lot so that I can just get as much practice in as I can. So I am going to raise them back up to my normal fees. But right now I just need a lot, a lot of practice and feedback and I have teachers and mentors. So if you're interested in getting my best coaching better than I've ever done at a big discount, email me hj at plantyourself.com. So let's get on with the show. Hey, I got a couple hours here at BCN, Barcelona International Airport, before my flight to JFK to New York. Going to spend three weeks in the States, go to a high school reunion, play a Frisbee tournament, see a bunch of friends, take care of storage units and vehicles, and looking forward to almost all of that. So today's conversation I recorded yesterday with a new friend, uh, Robert James, of Robert James Coaching. I met him uh, in a, a local group. He was looking for a place to do to lead Wim Hof workshops. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. So we, we met up and it turns out he's much more than just a Wim Hof instructor. He's mainly an anxiety and OCD coach. And he has a fascinating story about his own struggles with OCD and anxiety, his own steps towards recovery and how he helps other people. So I have a passing knowledge about OCD, but uh, we, when we go into depth in this conversation, which we recorded in his in his lovely home so at one point you may hear me say hola to his wife as she walked through and the dog scratches and bumps his tail a few times but uh, i think the sound quality is fine and i look forward to hearing your feedback about this conversation so without further ado robert james welcome to the plant yourself podcast fantastic thank you very much uh, it's really nice to be here yeah and he, by here we're, we're in this is your dining room <laughs> yes Lounge. we are this is my this is my first live interview in Spain, so it's a, this is one I'm going to remember. It's a big deal for me. So we we met through a uh, con- a conversation on a Facebook group, I think, mm. and you had mentioned you know you're looking for a place to do Wim Hof uh, workshops, and I'm like, oh, cool! And I saw you're you're a coach, and so he- here we are. So you are, I guess, would you call yourself an OCD coach? Yeah, my my main thing is is OCD and anxiety coaching. Um, it's something that I've been doing now for about four years or so. Um, you know, having struggled with OCD and anxiety myself uh, a lot in my uh, well, from the age of sixteen and throughout my twenties. Um, you know, I kind of learnt a lot from from those experiences in terms of how to manage it and how to to get through life despite you know a lot of discomfort and a lot of uh, difficulty. Um, you know, and so I wanted to kind of use that experience in a positive way, kind of turn it around and try to help people. Um, so that's one thing that I do. And then the other thing is, um, yeah, as you alluded to, I'm a, a Wim Hof Method uh, instructor. Um, the Wim Hof Method is one of those things that, you know, has helped me a lot with my own, uh, with my own anxiety. And we can kind of get into to how that helps um, but yeah, it's been something that's been very helpful. So again, you know, it's something I want to, to kind of share with other people. Yeah. So before we get into your story, um, let's let's lay down some definitions. So what what is OCD? Okay. So so OCD is obviously uh, you know characterized as a, a disorder. Yeah. Maybe start with it with the what the initials stand for. Yeah. Obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay. Um, obviously, people. Uh, tend to to get stuck on a particular theme or obsession uh, that they find particularly difficult or fearful. Um, you know, the classic idea that people have of OCD is is kind of hand washing, where people are obsessed about contamination, um, and then they perform compulsions in order to try to deal with 
the, the anxiety that these obsessions give them. Um, un- unfortunately, though, those, those compulsions are the very thing that, that keeps the cycle of OCD going because, um, you know, when people are obsessing about something and going around in circles w- with something, if they were able to actually just allow themselves to feel that fear and not perform compulsions to try to get rid of that fear or dampen that fear down, then actually they can learn that, you know, that's just fear, that's just anxiety, mm. you know, you can deal with that. It's not nice, but you can deal with it. Um, but unfortunately, most people, and myself included for many years, get into a habit of pushing away anxiety and discomfort and fear uh, and wanting to, to, to kind of live without that. Um, you know, which if you do get into that kind of mindset, it's, you know, it's quite unfortunate because you are obviously going to get stuck. You know, life is... There's always going to be uh, some discomfort in life, mm. um, and so so OCD really is a kind of it's a kind of coping strategy that people develop uh, in order to to kind of deal with difficult emotions. So the compulsions dampen the emotions in the short term, but in the long term, every time you perform a compulsion, you're reinforcing this obsessive loop, and you're mm. kind of telling yourself or sending yourself this message. If I feel obsessed or bad about something, then I have to do this or this in order to, to deal with it and get rid of it. Um, you know, and so in the future, that just means you're going to do more of that stuff. And it becomes a vicious circle where, unfortunately, the, the longer people are doing this, generally speaking, the smaller their, their, their world becomes because they can do less and less things. They are more and more fearful of everyday things. And, you know, it, it's, it's, a very, it's a very difficult uh, disorder to, to deal with. Mm. So I think a lot of listeners who don't do compulsive hand-washing or other behaviors can understand this idea of performing an action to modulate feelings, right? You know, whether it's eating junk food or overeating or laying on the couch and scrolling Instagram instead of going for a walk or journaling or, you know, taking care of responsibilities. Is, this, is that sort of the same thing? Or is, OC, is OCD just a more extreme version of that? Or is it a, a different thing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the same thing. But with somebody with OCD, the extremes to which they go to are just uh, on another level. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, we can all experience obsessions. Everybody experiences obsessions sometimes. And everybody performs compulsions sometimes in order to deal with the anxiety that comes up. Um, you know, that's, that's a normal human thing. The difference is with OCD is it becomes excessive. Not just excessive, like ridiculously excessive, where, you know, that thing that you're obsessing about is literally the only thing that you can think about for the entire day. And you're stuck and you're performing compulsions about it the entire day. And it basically just takes over your life. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it gets to the point um, with OCD, unfortunately, when it's not dealt with. For a lot of people, you know, they, they end up not being able to leave the house sometimes. Or, you know, they may struggle in their work or in their relationships because, you know, OCD is, is taken over. Um, you know, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's known to massively reduce the quality of life for the people who struggle with it. Um, yeah. So yeah. when I hear you talk about that, it sounds to me like an addiction mm. where, you know, people I know who have been addicted to substances in particular, like their entire world is designed around where can I get more of it? Where can I get the next one? Mm. What if I, what if my dealer doesn't show up? What if the liquor store is closed? Mm. Um, and you know, and so the world becomes smaller and smaller until everything they do is a uh, is a solution to the problem of where's my next hit. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a big component of it. And I try to uh, try to kind of speak to people about that di- like directly because I think understanding it in in that way is a really helpful way of of then learning how to let go of it because we recognize okay. Well, if you are addicted to, to alcohol, uh, for example, then what, what do you have to do in order to overcome that? And, 
you know, obviously we, the person has to learn to, to let go of drinking and change their behavior. And little by little, over time, things begin to, to get better. It's a rocky road. There may be ups and downs, but, you know, in the end, things will improve. And ultimately, it is the same with OCD. You know, it's, it's, we've become addicted to performing these little habits or, or actions that make us feel better in the short term. Perhaps they even give us a bit of a dopamine hit as you might get from, uh, from, from drugs uh, or alcohol. Um, you know, but, but unfortunately, yeah, every time that you, you do actually get that hit, you're just reinforcing to your subconscious mind that you, you need to do that thing in the future uh, in order to feel better. Mm. And I do think a, a big part of, of OCD for me was this... Uh, when I was younger, I, I don't know, I don't know why or where exactly this came from, but at some point, maybe because I was struggling with with things as a teenager, and I was struggling with the pressures of, you know, trying to grow up and uh, trying to find my place in the world and questioning things and all of this kind of stuff. But I, I was clearly struggling with with anxiety, and my response to that was to just try to find comfort. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, to, to, to not want to experience any discomfort at all. <laughs> you know, I almost became allergic to discomfort. And, you know, this was a huge, huge part of the problem. Because as long as I had that in my mindset of, you know, what I need is this kind of Epicurean approach to life where I just have pleasure and happiness and, you know, good feelings all the time. Um, you know, that unfortunately, as I found out later, is a real recipe for, for difficulty. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, we, 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 life is just not that way. I, I, wish, it, I wish that it were. <laughs> but, you know, when we, when we set out our tent and we say, okay, I'm just going to be happy all the time. And if I'm not, then I'm doing something wrong. You know, then... Unfortunately, I think we're inviting a lot of these problems in. That doesn't mean you can't have an amazing and content and happy life. You can. But the way in which you get it is, in my experience, is actually learning how to allow that discomfort in. Mm. Allow some of that, that pain and that uncertainty. People with OCD hate uncertainty. It's often known as the, the kind of doubting disease. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and so, but learning how to allow those things is, is really at the core of uh, let, letting go of that kind of addiction. Hmm. So one thing that comes to me is, you know, Gabor Mate, um, the Canadian um, psychiatrist yeah, yeah. who's written a lot about addiction, talks about people with addictions as our teachers, hmm. right? Like they've, they're not different than us. They've just had a more, they've gone deeper down the rabbit hole but it's sort of the same as our society, as, as all of us. When I hear you describing, you know, dealing with anxieties by trying to avoid them and trying to avoid discomfort, it sounds like my life, everyone's life I know, it sounds like our entire society and civilization mm. is kind of on that bent. And like, oh, so people with OCD have just gone, like, there are the explorers who've gone like, what, what happens when you take this to an extreme? <laughs> yeah. And we can look at that yeah. and learn from those who have returned. Mm. Yeah. Right. Which I, yeah. So I think, you know, you're, 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 it sounds like your, your practice is really focused on people who self-identify or have been diagnosed with OCD. Mm. But it sounds like it sounds like everyone. Yeah. Well, as we were alluding to at the start, this this is a, a natural thing. You know, all creatures, it's not even just humans, no, all creatures will move towards comfort and away from discomfort. It's the most natural thing in our nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is a normal thing. And, and again, OCD, though, is, is characterized by the, ext- the extreme nature of it. Willing to, uh, you know, wanting to really push away from that discomfort at all costs. Um, you know, and, and yeah, it unfortunately does not lead to, to good places. Yeah. So <clears throat> I get why eating a chocolate bar makes you feel better or you know being addicted to porn or alcohol right those are those are clear uh, dopaminergic pathways i don't get why washing your hands or or counting steps or touching banisters like why does that even work in the first place mm. yeah that's a good question 
I guess people are, are, are feeling this, this deep level of uneasiness and uncertainty about things. And uncertainty is, is, is the word here. Um, you know, they, they may not want to touch a railing, for example, because they don't know 100% that that railing is, is clean. Mm. Somebody else could have just touched it. I mean, even if it's not clean, they may be thinking, well, what if somebody touched it who had, you know, who's just had some kind of sickness or diarrhea bug? Um, you know, and what if I get that? Even if it's very, very small, even if there's only a kind of 0.5% chance of, of that or less being true, the person with OCD, for some reason, can't stand the idea of that uncertainty. Mm. They, can't, they can't stand it. They will not, they will not put up with it. Um, and it's something, it's something to do with this. It's kind of when there's uncertainty uh, in, in the room, people with OCD will want to get rid of that uncertainty. And they get addicted to, to, to that, to that kind of search for certainty or as close to certainty as possible. And the issue is that you can never quite get 100% certainty. You can get very close. You can get to 99999999 percent But you can never get 100% certainty about anything in this life. It's the one thing we know for sure, <laughs> is you cannot be certain. Um, the irony, there's a lot of irony involved with, with OCD. Um, but it, that, doesn't, that, that means that people don't know when to stop. They, they get addicted because they're looking for that 100% that certainty, and it's a trap. They can't quite get it, but they keep looking for it anyway because they're so anxious. And, and so they go around in, these, in, in this circle, and it's almost like you're just kind of digging a hole and getting more and more stuck. Um, you know, you can never quite get the certainty you're looking for, but the mind persuades you... Uh, you should just think about it one more time. You should just try a little bit harder, you know, because both of us have worked with acceptance commitment therapy. I mean, that's something that I use a lot in my work with people with OCD. You know, and one of the, the kind of big ideas behind acceptance commitment therapy is, is this kind of idea of the anxiety trap, um, you know, which is effectively where people use their analytical thinking skills to try to think themselves out of emotional problems. Mm. As we know, unfortunately, that's just not going to work. It's, uh, you know, you're trying to use a part of the brain uh, that, that is, uh, is meant for solving problems to fix an emotional problem. It's, it's literally like trying to fit a square into a triangle it's not going to, to work. Those parts of the brain don't communicate with each other. Um, you know, so it's almost like if we, if we think of kind of uh, the prefrontal cortex, which is our analytical uh, thinking skills, and then lower down we have our kind of limbic system. You know, those two parts of the brain do not communicate in, in the same way. You can't just use language and, and problem solving and speak to that part of the brain or even the reptilian part of the brain, they don't really compute. And so we have to find a different way uh, to, to actually get in touch with the body uh, to calm the body down in these situations. And we're not doing that. We're relying on our prefrontal cortex, on anal analytical thinking skills to try to figure out the problem to have certainty about it. And we're never going to get there. It doesn't matter how smart you are doesn't matter what your IQ is. All you're going to do is end up overheating your brain, overheating your circuits and winding yourself up and making OCD stronger in the process. Mm. You know, we have to learn that, that that's not going to work and, you know, to let go of that approach and try, try different things. Yeah. Well, it seems like, you know, if you're talking about being rational, so if I'm looking at you in the grip of OCD, I'm like, that's not rational. Mm. Like, it's very easy to see from the outside. And I imagine, that, you know, when you have when you are in the grip of a compulsion, some part of you knows this isn't going to solve it because it's never solved it. Mm. Um, and yet 
right there. There you are. <laughs> you're still doing it. Yeah. You're, still, you're still doing it. Yeah. Um, is it the fact that you're taking action that reduces uncertainty? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. It's, it's, you'd rather feel like, well, at least I'm doing something. Mm. And, and you want to be doing that familiar thing. You know, the familiar thing is to just sit and think about it more. Um, or, to, or to just avoid that thing that's making you uncomfortable. Um, that's, that's the familiar. That's what we're used to. And so, of course, it's, it's, it's normal that we would want to, to, try, to try those things again. Yeah. Um, because we feel comfortable with them. But unfortunately, you know, if you keep using the same tool, of course, you're going to stay stuck. And, um, but if you, if you say to somebody, well, why don't you go for a mindful walk? Well, you're really paying attention to your senses. You're trying to come into your body. Uh, you know, you're aware of the wind on your skin and you're aware of each step as you're walking through the grass. And on a day like that, this morning, you know, you're noticing the kind of uh, the rain on your skin and this, these kind of things. And when we take that approach, you know, it's much more likely that we're going to calm down a little bit. OK, we haven't resolved the problem in our mind, but when we don't focus on trying to resolve it, instead we try to come into the body, oftentimes that problem will just resolve itself. Because it wasn't really a problem in the first place. It was just the mind creating problems. And that sense of anxiety and urgency, because we're so activated, made it feel like it was real. Mm. But when we get in touch with our bodies and we go and do something, uh, something else, so often we just naturally calm down. Mm. And we come back to the problem later and we're like... Oh, I don't need to worry about that. That's nonsense. That's mm. just the OCD. And we know instinctively to just let it go. Mm. So um, when I hear the word anxiety, mm. um, I'm immediately trying to translate that into you know, neurological circuitry in, in the simplest form. It's a, you know, a feeling of threat. Mm. Right? And we don't know where the threat is coming from. So we don't know who to fight or, or where to run. Um, but there is this sense of like anxiety means the body senses immediate danger, right? So there's this concept um, in neurology of allostatic load, right? Which is just how stressed we are, how, how, how much we think we're in danger at any given moment. So, mm. you know, you and I are sitting here in this beautiful house with a gorgeous view of the mountains off to the left and a big old house to, to the right and... You know, all's, all's well in the world. There's, there's even a, a cute dog lying Bruno. down here. Bruno, <laughs> Bruno would, be, would be alerting us if there were any danger. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He would know. Yeah. And yet, you and I could be sitting here, both of us internally, in a, in a, a heightened sense of, of awareness of threat, um, which makes sense that you would do like when you're under stress you tend to default to the familiar mm, because you, yeah. do, you don't have the you know the neocortex is kind of the blood is shunted towards the the part of your brain that just wants to act instinctually mm. and i guess a lot Survival of OCD behaviors mm. are, are are have become at least habitual if not instinctual yeah absolutely absolutely you're spot on um, yeah, so I, I think that's, that's a big component of it. A lot of people with, with OCD are walking around with this activated sympathetic response, um, you know, and they're, they're really what they've got to learn how to do is to, to calm that nervous system down, um, you know, and more thinking, more analyzing, more ruminating is doing the opposite. And that's, that's the thing that they keep falling back on. And it's keeping them stuck in that trap and they're addicted to it. And so, yeah, we have to find a way to try to help people to let go of that old behavior, to really recognize, you know, when they're doing this. And that's one of the problems is some people uh, are so caught up in it that they don't even realize that they're doing it. Or if they do realize they're doing it, it's like they're so addicted to it that they, they just think that they can't stop and they tell themselves this narrative like, I can't stop. It's, I know I'm doing it, but for some reason, I can't stop. And people tend to catastrophize, you know, and, and these narratives, they can, you know, if, sadly, people with OCD, like I, I've worked with people who are in their 70s, 
who've struggled with it their entire lives and they've only figured out that they had OCD, you know, in the last 10 years or so as it's become more talked about mm. and, you know, there's social media, uh, a lot more social media about it and, and all of this stuff. And, you know, but sadly people do get really stuck with it and it goes on for years and these narratives, these negative catastrophizing narratives take over their lives you know and they convince themselves i can't change i've been doing this too long i'm broken yeah my brain is broken um my brain is out to get me Mm -hmm. all sorts of really unhelpful thinking and, and narratives that we spin uh the reality is that people are not broken uh in my experience i thought i was broken for a long time um, I don't think we're broken. And I also know that we have neuro- neuroplasticity. So, you know, at any point in life we can change and that's incredibly hopeful. Um, you know, and where we put our attention over time can help to, uh, to change that brain in a positive way. You know, build new circuits and, and all, of this, all of this stuff. And so, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's really important to, to reflect on. So I'm curious about what we know about, um, you know, origins, like some people develop it, some people don't. But I think before we get into that, are you willing to share kind of your story? Mm. But, uh, yeah, sure. You know, so I think, I think it would help ground us in, mm. in, in a, an end of one at least. Yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. How did, how, did, how did it come about for you? Yeah, so I was, I was age 16, I was at college and I was, um, I was in the UK, people tend to start drinking way too early. Um, it's not like the US where you, in some states the age limit is 21 no, for, for alcohol. But in the UK it's 18. But, you know, to be honest, at age 14, most people are going to their local shop and they have fake IDs or they had fake IDs. I'm not sure they'll get away with it anymore. And they're getting, they're getting alcohol, they're getting liquor, they're getting, you know, whatever. And um, so I was doing that and, you know, just being an unhealthy kind of teenager. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, that, that was what I was doing. And um, Were you living at home? At that time, no. So I actually went to a kind of boarding college. Uh-huh. And when you say college, like Americans are here, like college... Not at university, six, no. No, no, no. College at 16 would be like, you know, super genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, not at all. No, it was more like... A, like a high school almost um, for, for 16, 16 to 18 year olds. Okay. But it's slightly different than that. It was kind of uh, something between a university and uh, high school. Okay. But we went at age 16 and we were boarding there. Uh-huh. Um, so imagine you've got a whole bunch of 16, 17 year olds who are like, you know, let loose and they're just, you're just partying a bit too much. And um, yeah, it didn't help in terms of my obsessive thinking that I think was always there. It's always been a part of me from a young age. I would always overthink things, overanalyze things and get a bit stuck with stuff. That's always been there. But age 16, 17, started being a bit unhealthy with, with those kind of addictive substances. Mm. Uh, fortunately, never got addicted to, to anything like that. But... I noticed that my thinking went from being a bit problematic to being, well, OCD, you know, where I was just getting lost in these thoughts and, and it was getting worse and worse and worse over time. See, that's weird to me because when the stories I hear about people who have come back from alcoholism is they discovered when they took their first, you know, big swig, they discovered their new best friend, mm. right? Like all of a sudden, like, oh, I was anxious. Hola. Um, you know I I always had these these anxious thoughts I was always overthinking and all of a sudden I could relax and Mm. I could you know I could be myself and I could make friends with people and not and just like the 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 gremlins were gone yeah Yeah, is that your experience no of course but when when I was drinking yeah (laughs) but then but then the next day you know then you get this thing the the anxiety uh, you know, which is where I would begin to get lost in my thoughts and my ruminations about things. Um, and even sometimes when I was drinking, some nights it would be like you described, 
where I felt more myself, more relaxed, more able to communicate with people. But some nights, no. Some nights I would drink and I'd be in a bad mood before I started drinking. Mm. And all the alcohol I actually did was enhance that bad mood and create this kind of tunnel vision effect where I, I would just be obsessing you know, that night, but like a hundred times worse mm. because of the alcohol. So it would depend on, on the evening and what kind of mood I was in when I started uh, with that. But yeah, like I said, I never became, there was a, no point was I in danger of being an alcoholic. Like I would drink a lot on the weekend and then during the week I wouldn't drink anything. I see. You know, it was more kind of this binge drinking culture. Uh-huh, okay. But, uh, but yeah, it was just, it, it really negatively impacted me in my mood and my anxiety and it really kick-started a lot of this uh-huh. overanalyzing and overthinking. Uh-huh. So when your OCD first showed up, as you, as you look back and understand it now, what, what, would, what would we have seen if we would have looked at Robert and said, oh, that kid's got OCD? Yeah, so I think I became a lot more uh, reserved, a lot more insular. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't so, so confident anymore. I lost a lot of confidence. I went into my, into my shell. Um, you know, I was at college and so I was having to, to do lots of um, presentations and things like that. Presentations were my nemesis at that age. Like, I absolutely hated public speaking. It was like the worst thing possible for me. Um, and that was something that kind of carried on into university life uh, as well. You know, it was because it was putting me into that zone of discomfort and being on display in front of other people whilst experiencing that discomfort. Uh-huh. And it was just the worst possible thing. And I, I would, I remember just kind of being there trying to do these presentations and I must have looked like a rabbit caught in headlights, you know, like eyes wide open and just, you know, really struggling to get through this process. And, you know, a big part of that was kind of social anxiety as well. Mm. You know, very worried about what other people would think of me and, you know, typical kind of teenage stuff in a way. You know, teenagers, obviously, at that age, you are maybe more concerned than, than ever about whether you're fitting in and whether you're liked and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, so I found that incredibly hard. But yeah, just, just generally very anxious and really struggling to, to fit in and find my place. So what were, what were the compulsions that you used to manage the anxiety? Mm. So a lot, a lot of avoidance. Mm-hmm. So this doesn't, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, I feel, I realize I'm looking for like the movie scene of you, you know, counting steps or, or washing mm. hands. It, so it doesn't have to be an overt physical repetitive behavior. Well, there was different things. So I, I actually developed this thing called sensory motor OCD, which is where you become um, obsessed about different bodily processes. Um, so, for example, swallowing or blinking or breathing or um, you name it. I've had, had, them, had them all. Where all you can think about is that thing. And you're, you, you spend all day obsessed about it and unable to think about anything else. And you're sat there in a lecture, for example, and you can't pay attention to what the lecturer is talking about because all you're thinking about is... You're, you're swallowing. And it may sound completely ridiculous to somebody who's not been through this. And this is something that, you know, I often have to speak to people about is don't worry if other people don't understand what you're going through and, mm. or don't have empathy for what you're going through because, you know, OCD in the face of it, people will just be like, you're worrying about what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're obsessed about what? Why are you obsessed about that? Just don't, just don't think about swallowing. Don't think about it. That's it. You know, and, and then you'll be okay. Best advice ever, right? Yeah, don't exactly. think about the elephant. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, and they don't realize, like, what you're going through is, is absolute hell. Absolute hell. I mean, I worked, I've worked with a lot of people with sensory motor uh, OCD because I speak about it on my podcast a lot, having been through it myself. And it's, it's really torturous. People are really suffering um, with this stuff. Um, and they don't know how to get rid of it. They don't know how to stop it. Um, mm. Not realizing that just the very fact of trying to get rid of it is part of the problem. 
Um, but yeah, yeah well, when you when you mentioned it, I started like taking notes, swallowing, blinking, breathing, and I realized, oh, I could do that. Mm. Like, <laughs> like yeah. as you're talking, I'm like, oh, look at my swallowing. Like, I I could see pretty easily how, like, now I don't. Am I doing it right? Yeah. Am I you know am I over blinking or under blinking? Mm. It's like these these things that are so. So, you know, unconsciously controlled are now in my consciousness and now... There we go. There we go. Now the mechanism that I'm supposed to be using to listen to you and formulate my next question is like devoted to blinking, breathing and swallowing. Absolutely. It's horrible. Make, make it stop. <laughs> and I, I, yeah, exactly. And so it's, a, it's an attentional thing as well. You know, it's like, what are you paying attention to? And I, I feel like there's a component of that involved in OCD as well, where people's attention is being grabbed by the, by the obsession and, and taken away from them, or so it feels. They feel kind of helpless and powerless. And I, I, I feel like that's a big part of why people feel so awful with OCD, is they've lost their sense of power their sense of autonomy in their life. They feel like, oh, my attention just gets dragged to this thing and there's nothing I can do about it and I'm going to suffer forever. That, and that's the kind of narrative that people are telling themselves and this is why it's so hard. Yeah. Well, that's my insomnia experience. Mm. Right, like, why can't I just go the fuck to sleep? Yeah. Why, why am I thinking about this thing? How can I, right? Mm. So, you know, yeah. and it's not, you know, thank God it's not during my waking hours mostly mm. yeah but yeah you know two in the morning those you know like i would not choose these thoughts if i if i had another choice yeah yeah exactly that and then it you know but it can jump on to so for me i mean i've experienced lots of different types of themes of ocd um not so much the classic one though so when people normally think of ocd because of movies and different things they think of hand washing um, you know, and that can be one very serious part of OCD. But the OCD that most people struggle with, I think, is something that's known as uh, purely obsessional or pure O hmm. OCD, which is a misleading name because the idea purely obsessional is, is this idea that there isn't a compulsion. It's just you just obsess about things because the compulsion is done mentally. It's done in the head. Uh-huh. It's not a physical compulsion. Nobody can see it. Yeah. So they just say it's purely obsessional. But, I mean, it's clearly not because there's still a compulsion. It's just done in their head. If there wasn't a compulsion, then you wouldn't have OCD. You just have obsessions. Uh-huh. And if you don't pay too much attention to obsessions, at some point they disappear. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, yeah. <clears throat> so... Let's keep going with your story. So, how, how, so you're 16. This all starts. Yeah. Um, you became socially anxious. You mm. would be sitting in lectures thinking about sensory motor mm. inputs. Yeah. Um, less and less willing or able to give presentations, trying to avoid things. Mm. Are you, were you the kind of guy who was like, I'll write three papers instead of... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was just doing my best to, to avoid discomfort, to avoid uncertainty and anxiety. And I was getting caught up, worst of all, in these obsessive thinking styles and patterns. Um, you know, and that was really the main thing. You know, it was this compulsive thinking of trying to get myself out of, this, out of these problems or out of these states. And that, that was a habit. That was, that was when the addiction started. Age 16, it really just became an addiction. And it carried on, like, terribly <laughs> uh, until I was maybe in my mid-20s. I mean, I didn't know what it was at all. I was struggling. I struggled my way through university. I started having panic attacks and, you know, things were getting worse and worse. And I was looking for answers and I was searching online Around about my mid-twenties, I started to find out about mindfulness and meditation and acceptance commitment therapy and, you know, a lot of these approaches. Uh, I I came across the work of John Kabat-Zinn, read his book, um, Full Catastrophe Living, I think it was called. Yeah. 
something along those lines. Um, you know, and these things were really game changers for me because it was when I first came across this concept of acceptance. Up until that point, I'd just been fighting. Mm-hmm. It was a fight, you know, and, and, and I, was, I was losing. I was at the end of, you know, uh, a knockout punch <laughs> on several occasions where I really felt that, that I'd been defeated by this. Um, but then I learned I've been taking the wrong approach after all. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I shouldn't be doing boxing. Maybe I need to do jiu-jitsu. Uh, you know, and, uh, and things began to change. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess when you're doing boxing, just to, you know, to use that metaphor, someone is taking swings at you. Mm. And so acceptance from that place feels like, okay, I'm just going to get punched in the face. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the unasked question is, what would happen? What's the worst that would happen if I didn't fight? Mm. Right. And the, the, the answer from that place is like probably annihilation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, there's no, I, what do you mean not fight? I, yeah, I, exactly. I to, this isn't a choice. That's really well put. Yeah. Like, so the, 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 the mind frame that I had at that point was you have to fight. There's no other alternative. And that's, that, that was or is Western culture. You know, that's what we kind of believe in, in our culture. Fortunately, that's beginning to change slowly. We're opening up more to this idea of acceptance with the introduction of mindfulness and other Eastern practices and other ways of viewing the world. And, but at that point, I had no idea. Um, as soon so, as... Yeah, sorry, so before, before we get to the, the way out, mm. um, I'm curious, did, I, I didn't hear any um, psychi- psychiatric treatments. You didn't, you didn't, did you end up like, getting diagnosed and put, being put on drugs? Well, I went to the doctor several times, and all they wanted to do was give me beta blockers and uh, SSRI medication, and I didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I was really, like, really suffering, but I just didn't want to do it. I, I had this, like, um, maybe I was wrong, I don't know, but I just didn't want to use pharmaceuticals. Right. To and just for people, the beta blockers actually <coughs> prevent your heart from, from beating faster mm. when it needs to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the SSRIs are, of course, the mm. Prozacs and mm. the um, yeah, antidepressants. Mm. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So that was, you know, that was their, that's all they kind of offered me. They said, well, you can, you can have some therapy. Oh, actually, I did go to therapy with the National Health Service in the UK. <laughs> and I went and sat down with this really nice-seeming lady. Uh, and we sat, and she got me to fill out these forms for, like, half an hour. And, like... The poor person, she looked more anxious than I was. And I was really anxious, you know. She was under so much pressure, I think, seeing so many people all day, every day. Mm. Um, it, 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 I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't helpful at what, all. Can you remember what, she try, what, what her modality was to help you? Well, she was, she was doing CBT. Uh-huh. But, um, can you explain that quickly? Yeah, co- cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so... You know, which is uh, generally speaking, it's quite a helpful approach when when you work with a practitioner who has enough time for you to, you know, to really uh, to give you the support that you need. Um, you know, it's about trying to look at your your cognitions and your behaviours, and and thinking about how to change those things uh, over time in, in order to to you know to help you, but. Um, yeah, I, I think this, with the National Health Service in the UK, the, the amount of time this person had to help me, you know, it was mm. just not enough. And it was not going to be enough sessions. You know, uh-huh. I think it was something like five or six sessions of half an hour, you know, spread out over six weeks or something. And I mean, she gave me uh, a pamphlet with information about, you know, what to do if you're feeling anxious. I mean, it, it was just ridiculous. It was stuff that I could find myself online very easily. It wasn't going to help me much. Mm-hmm. So, so I did that, and that was it. I didn't really... I didn't get much support. I think there's, there was also the fact that I was struggling with a lack of self-compassion, um, struggling with this British kind of way of viewing mental health, 
which is to, to ignore mental health problems, um, particularly 20 years ago. Um, you know, and so I just try to ignore it, get on as best as I could, you know, and, and you know, that, that, was my, that was my approach. Mm. All right, so let's, uh, let's shift to the discovery of mindfulness, meditation, mm. um, John Kabat-Zinn. So what, continue the story? Yeah, so, so I came across all of those uh, modalities and, and methods and just the idea of acceptance. Literally just the idea of it began to change the whole, the whole way that I was looking at these things. So what, what, is, what did acceptance mean to you then? Acceptance at that time, um, initially, it was this idea of, okay, if I'm feeling anxious, rather than just pushing it away, uh, can I try to pay attention to it a little bit and be patient with it mm. and just see if it, if it changes by doing that. Mm. Um, you know, so John Kabat-Zinn was talking, I mean, I was really struggling with panic at university. I was having panic attacks. Um, I wasn't hyperventilating, but I was, fear, um, you know, experiencing that kind of uh, freeze state of panic. Um, Physiological. Yeah, I wasn't frozen, but I felt like completely almost frozen in my body and nobody could see what was going on. But I was in like absolute agony in these lecture theatres where I felt like I was about to break down and just, you know, lose control of everything. And, you know, if anybody tried to speak to me, it would have been very awkward (laughs) because... I just wouldn't have been able to, to, to do much. Did you, did you think you were all alone at that point? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like no, no one else in the world. Like, I mean, you know, someone else could have had the same thing, be looking at you and had no clue, right? At some point I told my parents about it, but I didn't tell friends. I didn't tell anybody about it. You know, it was just I kept it to myself. I just mm. thought I was, you know, I was being weak I, or I was... Yeah, like I said, I didn't have self-compassion. We're not very good at that mm. in the UK. And I just thought I need to stop. Uh, I need to stop doing this. And I need, need to, to figure it out by pushing, pushing through. Um, and that was my approach. Okay. Um, so, so then you discovered acceptance. Mm. Do you remember your first experiments with acceptance? Because I'm, I'm imagining it's my first, you know, your first experiments with putting your gloves down and bracing for a punch yeah well i i was at a i used to work at a surf a surf shop in uh southampton uh down, downtown southampton and i'd been struggling a lot in that job um just just being there and dealing with the customers and trying to not kind of obsess about my thoughts and be present and not have a panic attack and like all that stuff and I remember, okay, today I'm going to practice this acceptance. And it wasn't perfect, but straight away I noticed subtle changes um, where it was just a little bit easier to deal with, you know? And I just felt, looking back, I can see already there was an opening of self-compassion there Mm. just through that idea and concept of, oh, it's okay if I feel a bit bit bad. Mm. I don't have to feel good, you know? I don't have to feel comfortable, See, yeah. there's another irony in there because you'd think, well, self-compassion would mean I do everything I can to make myself feel good. And here you're saying self-compassion was allowing feelings mm. even if they weren't the preferred. Oh, ones. it's a massive misconception of, of self-compassion that, we, that I think is still very prevalent, actually. You know, this idea of self-compassion almost being indulgence. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, like doing like amazing things for yourself. And it can be that. Like that, that you know... It's not a bad idea sometimes to go to go to the spa or yeah. do something nice for yourself. But actually, a lot of the time for me, I've realized compassion is is discipline. Mm. Ooh, that's a good head. That's a good title. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so you're at the surf shop and you're practicing compassion as you understood it then, Mm. uh, which was simply to say, okay, this feeling is here. 
And were you just like, I'm going to tolerate it, or I'm going to be curious about it, or I'm going to welcome it? Like, there's, I, I imagine that there's a, uh, a continuum mm. of once you get past, you know, I'm going to destroy this thing any way I can, to um, different levels yeah. of, of welcoming. Yeah. Yeah, I think definitely initially it was more tolerating it. You know, just, okay, it's there. It can be there. You know, this idea, this concept of exploring it that came a little bit later. Uh, now I, I equate mm. acceptance with curiosity. Mm. For me, that's what acceptance is. It's curiosity. Can I be interested in my emotional states? You know, because when we can do that, that's when you really begin to change your relationship with them. And, you know, when you kind of, maybe you even invite discomfort not in a <laughs> not in a horrible kind of say this way not at all but in a way of okay what can I do that's something that I'm avoiding on purpose something that I know is something that I need to do or I want to do or that is important to me um, but that is making me anxious you know the idea of doing that thing is something that I'd rather not do well maybe I need to set myself a goal that is you know, something that's, you know, going to lead me towards that thing. Maybe not the biggest thing possible that I can achieve in relation to that, but at least the stepping stone along the way, you know, and, and that's something that I've realized that I have to incorporate into my life. Um, this idea of looking for little challenges on a, on a daily basis, if I can, things that will make me feel a bit uncomfortable, things that, you know, because life isn't always going to be just, as we talked about at the start, it's just not always going to be relaxing and fun and enjoyable. Sometimes it is going to be uncomfortable. And so if we can actually choose and make a choice to say, I'm going to meet that discomfort on my terms, mm. yeah. <laughs> you know, rather than waiting for it to come and get us, then actually that, that, that changes things as well. You know? yeah. yeah, with my, with my uh, clients who are struggling with their eating, I often talk about the difference between a cage match and a mugging, mm. where you're, both, you're still, you're still going to get hit, and it's still going to hurt afterwards, yeah. but you're going to have a very different experience of volunteering to step into the ring, yeah. knowing what you're getting into, versus constantly looking over your shoulder mm. to see when the next pizza or... Exactly Beer that. Is gonna exactly. Jump you. Exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, when you said like taking on little challenges, I think people who have a, a passing familiarity with, with psychological models could could directly map that onto CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. ACT ACT is not completely different. There's mm. a lot of. Can you can you talk a little bit about what you value in ACT? That you know the the flavor it brings to that part of of, the, of cognitive uh, behavioral issues that, mm. that, that helps you yeah that you offer to clients yeah absolutely I mean as as I mentioned earlier I think a big part of um, of OCD is this this feeling this catastrophizing and this belief that you know uh, I've lost control of my attention it's being dragged around from one obsession to another. And, and I'm having to perform all these compulsions. And ACT, I feel, is, is a, a kind of almost a philosophy of how to go about your day-to-day -day life, um, you know, and, and taking back control of where your attention is being dragged to. Uh, a big part of it, as you know, a big part of ACT is, is values, figuring out what is most important to you in your life. Um, because when we know what those values are, well, that's motivation, actually, to, to kind of come back to the present and focus on things that, that make our life meaningful and interesting and important. Um, you know, and that could be all sorts of things. It could be family or it could be work, meaningful work, adventure, creativity, whatever it is for, so, for so, you. So like if you're sitting in that lecture hall and you're having this panic attack and all of a sudden you see a, a, a fire... <laughs> In the, in the uh, rubbish bin and the alarm goes off, presumably you can change your focus yeah. to doing something. You don't yeah. have to sit there pay, paying attention to your swallowing mm. and blinking. You can yeah. actually like, oh, my life is in danger. That person over there is in danger. I mm. need to help. Yeah. So, that, so that when values get activated, mm. they can supersede right, these, the obsessive thoughts. Exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, 
when, when you use act correctly, I like this analogy of a kind of spotlight. So OCD, imagine a, a stage and, you know, uh, the protagonist on the stage is your, your values. And if you're being healthy, then you're going to be shining that, that spotlight on the protagonist, mm-hmm. on you and your values. The problem with OCD is this spotlight, rather than being on the stage, it goes all the way over to, to the left, to the, to the side of the stage where there's absolutely nothing going on. Mm-hmm. And nobody else wants to pay attention to that part of the stage. But the person with OCD does. They want to pay attention to their swallowing or they want to pay attention to contamination or whatever their obsession is. And it keeps happening. So what we have to do is basically with acceptance commitment therapy is, is gently, whenever we realize, oh, I've gone off to the side of the stage. Okay, I'm going to gently but mindfully bring my attention back to my values, the protagonist, the mm. stage. Uh-huh. And if I get distracted again, 30 seconds later, that's okay. I'm going to remain calm and I'm going to bring my attention back. And again, bring it back. And we might be doing this a lot, you know, where we have to keep bringing it back. But the more we practice the skills of act, the more we practice that. I mean, it's very much related to, to meditation. You know, it's, it's the same kind of, I mean, well, that's act what, is that's kind what of... I was thinking. When, you know, yeah. whenever, whenever somebody starts meditating, they, they suddenly have to face the fact that they are not in charge of their attention. Mm. Yeah. Right? Like count your breaths to 10 and keep, just keep doing that for 20 minutes. And if you happen to, to lose track, just start over. Like yeah. Three. And then 20, 20 minutes later, I'm like, what was I supposed to be doing? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, that. oh, I don't, I don't have any control over this the, the at mon- all. The monkey mind. Yeah. Um, yeah and I, I do feel like people with OCD, there is an, an element of that going on. Um, unfortunately, not everybody who has OCD benefits from mindful meditation. Yeah. You know, because it is a problem of being in their heads a bit too much. And it can be that if they try to just quieten their mind and focus on one singular point, the breath, for example, that they just get inundated with thoughts and it's counterproductive. Um, You know, Bessel van der Kolk talks about, like, for for a lot of people, meditation is counterindicated because their, their mind is a bad neighborhood. Mm. They feel less safe there than they feel elsewhere. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. That's a great, a great book. His uh, his book, um, the body keeps the score. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, it might it might be that they they practice this meditative approach in their day to day life, though, mm-hmm. where, you know, it is same, the same kind of thing, but they're learning how to just bring their attention back to their values whenever they get uh, caught up in things. And it's also important they develop the skill of acknowledging, you know, that they have been caught out, maybe labeling, you know, their, their thoughts. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they're doing something with them before they then actually bring their attention back to, to the present, you know. And, and also, I think a big component of ACT is really, you know, creating separation between you and your thoughts, recognizing that, you know, you aren't your thoughts. These are passing phenomena. Um, you know, they're going on in your head in the moment. You know, you feel like you are your thoughts. But in reality, you know, when we're able to take this more um, bird's eye kind of kind of perspective we're able to create some separation between ourselves and and our thoughts and act introduces all sorts of diffusion techniques that can help us with with that yeah i i am a number of my clients have found that the the formulation i'm noticing the thought that Mm. is one of the most powerful tools we have Mm. it's like i'm so pissed right now i'm noticing the thought that i'm pissed right now. yeah yeah oh right like there it is and there's a corner of the stage, but there's still a whole stage. And there's other thoughts, and mm. there's other feelings, and I'm a little hungry. Yeah, and... absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These, these tools are, you know, they help me personally so much. And that's how, I, that's how I knew, okay, act as something that really works. I mean, if it worked for me, then obviously it will work for other people. And it, and it does. It makes, yeah. it makes a big difference. So let's talk about how you help people now. Mm. Yeah, so obviously one of those modalities is, is ACT. Um, you know, it's been 
very, very helpful for, for people. Uh, another, another big element of my work is uh, exposure. You know, so encouraging people to, to not avoid their obsessions. Um, you know, the, the obvious thing to do is just to, to not put yourself in a position where you're going to be triggered or activated by your fears. Um, but we know from a psychological perspective, if you take that avoidance approach, sadly, all that's going to happen is that thing is going to become bigger and bigger and bigger in your mind. Um, the best thing you can do is learn how to face that thing in a slow, gradual and supportive kind of way. Um, you know, so this is where exposure work comes in, where we're just, you know, encouraging people to, to find a way to, to gently start pushing back, to learn how to lean into that discomfort and that fear and to learn how to get comfortable with the uncomfortable. Um, you know, and actually this is where the Wim Hof method uh, comes into my work with OCD as well. Um, you know, because obviously the Wim Hof method, a big element of that is, is the cold exposure. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you get into an ice bath or when you have a cold shower, uh, which you should always do in a safe way, uh, just like to point out, uh, you, uh, you, you have an opportunity, you know, to, to learn how to explore and accept discomfort. Yeah, it's going to be different from the, the exact discomfort that comes up from your particular obsession if you're struggling with OCD. However, it's a similar urge. There's an urge to escape. Mm-hmm. There's an urge to avoid. There's an urge to, to not be present to what's going on and to try to perform some kind of compulsion to dampen it, like get out or distract yourself from it. And actually, when we learn how to be mindful and stay in the cold and actually try to move towards that discomfort, try to feel it more, um, become curious about it. These are skills that, you know, you're feeling your way into them. You're not thinking about them. You're directly experiencing the discomfort and you're voluntarily doing it. You're trying to feel it more. That for me is transformative. You know, that's something that you can learn so much from. And, you know, and then when it does come to, to your OCD, okay, maybe you're still struggling with it, but now you, at least you understand what acceptance is. <laughs> yeah. You know, and often it does begin to, to, to change people's perspective on things a little. <clears throat> so how do you work with people? Well, I work online with people. Um, I work with three main things, so three main modalities, act, uh, exposure work, and, and self-compassion training. Um, but tied in with all of that is the Wim Hof Method. Uh-huh. Um, so we, what I do is I kind of, I have my podcast, and people find me through the podcast normally. But yeah, I'm, I'm working with people with those three different things. Uh-huh. I don't have a specific plan that I follow for every person. Mm-hmm. For each person, it's obviously completely tailored to, to, to what they're turning up to me with. Um, I'm quite intuitive as to, you know, after speaking to somebody um, and figuring out, okay, this is where this person is right now. I think that they, they would benefit from, from working with ACT, first of all. Or maybe we need to jump straight into some Wim Hof method training. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe some kind of breath work and uh, meditation exercises will help them to, you know, learn to, to kind of um, get more in touch with their parasymp- parasympathetic nervous system. And then we can start working on exposure. I mean, it depends on, mm-hmm. on each person, but it's those kind of three, four main areas that, that I focus on. Yeah, so you work one-on-one with people over Zoom? Yeah, yeah. And so they can be anywhere in the world? Absolutely, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. So, so I do that. I also do uh, Wim Hof workshops locally in this, this area as well. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Great. So how can people find you, find your podcast? And if they want to work with you, how do they, how do they take their first step? Yep. So you can go to my website, uh, robertjamescoaching.com. Right, say, it, say it nice and slow. Uh, it's robertjamescoaching.com. Very British sounding name there, Robert James. 
Um, yeah, and then I uh, also have my podcast, which is uh, aptly named the OCD and Anxiety Podcast by Robert James Coaching. But you'll probably find it if you type in the OCD and Anxiety Podcast. Okay. How long have you been doing it? Uh, the podcast has been going about three years now. Nice. So weekly? Uh, two, two a week. Two a week. Mm. Wow. Is it you... Mostly talking to other people or just pontificating by yourself? It's a bit of both, yeah. So, so I, uh, I enjoy doing some monologues. So I often do a kind of you know, 15-minute or 10-minute fairly short monologue where I'm talking about a specific issue related to OCD or anxiety. Uh, people tell me they, they find that very, very helpful, get really good feedback about, about those uh, bite-sized kind of uh, podcast so people can just kind of dive in and get some advice about a, partic- a particular area they might be struggling with or I do more long-form conversations like this mm-hmm. with various OCD therapists or uh, anxiety specialists and authors and you know different types of people like that so gotcha gotcha well, so so people uh, who are like struggling to find time to listen to my podcast which is usually over an hour <laughs> yours is easy right? yeah less, less of a commitment you yeah you can get good stuff in 10 15 minutes sometimes. yeah yeah excellent all right robert james coaching.com the ocd and anxiety podcast i will drop those into the show notes anything i uh, didn't ask that you want to mention no not at all no it's been uh, it's been fantastic uh, to, to come on your podcast your, your questions have been excellent and uh, yeah, th- thanks a lot for having me on. Well, sure. Thank you for hosting me. Thank you for, for rescuing me from the, the hotel with the <laughs> <laughs> horrible lobby music yeah. where I thought we were going to record. So I'm yeah. sure, you know, anyone who's listening to this who's not listening to um, you know, early 2000s covers of Chris Isaac songs in the background, <laughs> <laughs> thank, uh, thank Robert and his, and his uh, VW van for getting us up here to <laughs> Nice, quiet surroundings. So, uh, Robert, thank you for, for all that you do in the world, for uh, putting out the podcast and just helping so many people for free and for uh, taking the time and uh, spending this hour with us today. Thank you. And that's a wrap. I don't have the episode number handy off the top of my head here at the airport, but if you just search, go to Plant Yourself and uh, plantyourself.com slash show, and there'll be a little search thing up at the top right. Just put in uh, Robert James Coaching or OCD or anxiety, and I'm sure you'll find it. And you can check out the links to everything that we talked about. So movement news, it's been a quiet week. Um, My um, personal trainer's daughter has been sick, so he's been taking care of her rather than taking care of me, which I guess is okay. Um, But maybe this is a nice little break, give my foot a chance to heal, and then I'm going to be in New York, going to do some some sprints in Central Park and getting ready for the the big tournament at the end of the month. Um, So combination of staying in shape, building my cardio, and letting the right foot heal the left foot heel, the left heel foot, what? Yeah, just letting everything get better. So um, that's about it for me. Uh, Looking forward to your comments about this episode. Looking forward to bringing you more great stuff in the coming weeks. And as always, be well, my friends.